Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, wrote Glenn Povey on Loudersound.com, was the product of unfinished sessions, shambolic live shows, and band alienation. And it's one of the band's greatest, coming as it did during the incredible musical and creative stream that began with Dark Side of the Moon and continued with Animals and finally The Wall. Much of this sense of alienation was born out of the massive high the band had experienced post-Dark Side of the Moon. The huge success of that album had propelled Floyd from being a relatively anonymous cult rock act to mainstream public property. They were now as popular, maybe even more so, than Led Zeppelin, The Who, and The Stones. But then, from a personal perspective, things came crashing down just as fast as they had built up. As with any industry that relies on sales, their record label wanted a lot more of the same, and fast. But repeating that level of success was not going to be easy for anybody, let alone Pink Floyd, who first had to come to terms with the fact that they had, at last, made it. The nonstop tour they'd been on suddenly stopped, kind of abruptly, in June of 1973, after another lengthy trek around North America. Pink Floyd played just four more shows that year. The remainder of 1973 saw a dramatic change for the band. Until then, they'd lived kind of in each other's pockets, but now... They needed some space from each other. Both Gilmore and Mason sought refuge in projects outside of the band. When Pink Floyd finally did reconvene at Abbey Road Studios on October 1st, 1973, they were pretty much at ease with these new detached lives. They were in a state of inertia and didn't have any ideas about what to do next. They felt an obligation to produce something, even if it meant doing it just for the sake of that. And that is more or less what they ended up doing. In what has now become known as the Household Objects Project, the band avoided the real issue and instead diverted their energies into a prolonged and agonizing project of trying to create an entire album using only sounds produced by household objects. Ultimately, it was a wasted effort, although Gilmore did reveal in recent years that the technique of running a finger around the rim of a glass to produce a note was eventually put to use on Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Despite putting on a brave face, even Floyd had to concede defeat, and after reviewing that material in November, further sessions for that project were cancelled. Around Christmas of that year, 1973, the band booked time at a rehearsal studio in London's King's Cross area. In complete contrast to their efforts at Abbey Road, where there was pressure to come up with the goods, their creative juices began to flow in a more natural way, and many of the songs they would write for their next two albums emerged, not least a stunning new song, tentatively referred to as Shine On. We started playing together and writing in the way we'd written a lot of things before, in the same way that Echoes was written, Roger Waters remembered. Shine On You Crazy Diamond was written in exactly the same way, with odd little musical ideas coming out of various people. The first one, the main phrase, came from Dave. The first loud guitar phrase you can hear from the album was the starting point, and we worked from there until we had the various parts. About the members' detachment from each other, Roger Waters has repeatedly stated that Dark Side of the Moon had more or less finished the group as a creative force, since with that, they had fulfilled the shared ambition for fame and fortune. Nevertheless, on January 13, 1975, Pink Floyd convened at EMI's newly refitted Studio 3 at Abbey Road to start work on their seventh studio album. Because of their touring commitments, the sessions took place either side of and between two tours of North America. As a result, the recording process became very protracted and fragmented, pushing the release back to September. Once again, Pink Floyd were afforded the luxury of being able to refine all of these new songs in live performance. Back at Abbey Road in May, Waters was keen to carry on working despite obvious tensions. We pressed on regardless of the general disinterest for a few weeks, and then things came to a bit of a head, Waters recalls. I felt that the only way I could retain interest in the project was to try to make the album relate to what was going on there and then. 
The fact that no one was really looking each other in the eye and that it was all very mechanical. Waters' vision was cemented at a band meeting. We all sat around and unburdened ourselves a lot, and I took notes on what everybody was saying. It was a meeting about what was happening and why. Waters further extended his ideas of the general themes of absence and detachment by opting to write more material. I suggested that we change it, Waters continues, that we didn't do the other two songs, which were called Raving and Drooling and Gotta Be Crazy, but tried somehow to make a bridge between the first and second halves of Shine On, which is how Welcome to the Machine, Wish You Were Here, and Have a Cigar came in. Dave was always clear that he wanted to do the other two songs. He never quite copped what I was talking about, never quite understood it, but Rick did and Nick did. And Dave was outvoted, so we went on. With Gilmore and Waters, the principal players in the band, at complete cross-purposes, recording carried on, even if Gilmore wasn't convinced. After Dark Side, we really were floundering around. I wanted to make the next album more musical. I always thought that Roger's emergence, Gilmore said, as a great lyric writer on the last album, was such that he came to overshadow the music. On the album's two remaining tracks, starting with Welcome to the Machine... Waters once again delivered a cynical take on the treadmill of existence. It was sung by Gilmore, whose warmer vocal delivery actually disorients the listener. Gilmore recalled the development of the track being, quote, very much a made-up-in-the-studio thing, which was all built up from a basic throbbing made on a VCS-3 synthesizer with a one-repeat echo used so that each boom is followed by an echo repeat to give it a throb. Another standout track on the album is Have a Cigar which was a hit in the U.S., despite the fact that the lead vocal was performed not by any member of Pink Floyd, but by folk singer Roy Harper, as detailed in the documentary Pink Floyd, The Story of Wish You Were Here. Roger was really struggling with it, and then Dave, then they both tried. There was a lot of arguing about how we were going to do it and how we were going to make it work, and at one point Roy, who was in the room, piped up and said, I just said, I'll do it, if you, if you like, for a price. I mean, Roy really put his heart in. I mean, I can I can picture him now, as if his life depended on it. And did we tell you the name of the game, boy? We call it right in the gravy train. It's played millions of times around the world as a single. That was my vocal as on a you know really a number one selling single. Uh, everybody thought it was Roger. <laughs> I was a bit peed off about that. Now, ordinarily, the band would develop ideas for songs through music, but in the case of the title track, it was David Gilmore who built the music around an existing piece of poetry by Waters. Wish You Were Here's masterstroke is the use of that tinny transistor radio sound that links the end of Shine On to Gilmore's delicate guitar work at the beginning of Wish You Were Here apparently recorded from David Gilmour's car radio with an excerpt from Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony just creeping in there. It's all meant to sound like the first track getting sucked into the radio with one person sitting in the room playing guitar along with it. Although Shine On You Crazy Diamond is the one that is specifically about Sid and Wish You Were Here it has a broader remit. I can't sing it without thinking about Sid. Although those sessions gave life to one of Pink Floyd's best love albums, the sessions which eventually gave rise to the album have since become known for one of the most haunting episodes in Pink Floyd's career. On June 5th, 1975, a visitor appeared at Abbey Road for reasons nobody knows to this day. My memory is that I came into the studio and there was this guy standing there in a gabardine raincoat, a large, large bloke, and I had no idea who it was. 
And surprisingly, no one's saying, who's that person? What's he doing wandering around all our gear <laughs> in the studio? Then him coming into the control room and standing around, and how long it was before anyone actually woke up. Finally, I think it was David who said, um, Nick, do you know, recognize him? And I looked, and I think I either shrugged my shoulders or at some point Dave said, uh, it's, it's it. And then we were all unbelievably shocked at um, his appearance. I mean, I didn't recognize I didn't know it was him. But it was um, pretty affecting, really. I mean, Roger and Dave cried. Maybe even more disturbing was the fact that Sid turned up precisely on the day that the band began the final mixes of their extended tribute to him, Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Sid's appearance that day was unsettling, to say the least. Barrett remains a curious specter that has hung over the band ever since his forced departure in 1968, and Roger Waters' feelings of guilt, frustration, and sadness toward the loss of his school friend are all over Wish You Were Here as he explored themes of loneliness, isolation, and absence. The artwork for the Wish You Were Here album was designed again by the hypnosis team of Storm Thorgerson and Aubrey Powell. It works as a very specific visual representation of the subject matter and extends themes of presence and absence. The front cover photo, taken at Warner Brothers Studios in L.A., featured a couple of stuntmen. The idea of somebody getting ripped off or burned, even as he agrees to a deal with a handshake, explained Powell. Even the outer edge of the photograph has the look of being singed. Elsewhere, a diver doesn't disturb the water on entry. A salesman is faceless, and a veil obscures the photo of a naked woman. All of this was then encased in a black shrink-wrap outer covering, which made the whole album look appropriately anonymous. Wish You Were Here was released on September 12, 1975, and went straight to the top of the album charts on both sides of the Atlantic. It's estimated to have sold more than 14 million copies worldwide. Upon its release, the album received mixed reviews. Ben Edmonds wrote in Rolling Stone that the band's, quote, lackadaisical demeanor leaves the subject of Barrett unrealized. They give such a matter-of-fact reading of the goddamn thing that they might as well be singing about Roger Waters' brother-in-law getting a parking ticket. Edmonds concluded that the band is devoid of the, quote, sincere passion for their art that contemporary space rock acts reportedly have. Melody Maker's reviewer wrote, quote, From whichever direction one approaches Wish You Were Here, it still sounds unconvincing in its ponderous sincerity and displays a critical lack of imagination in all departments. A positive review came from Robert Criscow in The Village Voice, quote, The music is not only simple and attractive, but it actually achieves some of the symphonic dignity that Dark Side of the Moon simulated so ponderously. Years later, Chris Gow reflected further on the record. Quote, my favorite Pink Floyd album has always been Wish You Were Here, and you know why? It has soul, that's why. It's Roger Waters' lament for Sid. Not my idea of a tragic hero, but as long as he's Roger's, that doesn't matter. The album was Rick Wright's favorite. He said, quote, I think that's my favorite album that Floyd ever did. I feel the best material from the Floyd was definitely when two or three of us co-wrote something together. Afterwards, we lost that. There wasn't that feeling of interplay of ideas between the band. It's an album I can listen to for pleasure, and there aren't many Floyd albums that I can. Gilmore shared that view. Quote, I, for one, would have to say that it's my favorite album, the Wish You Were Here album. The end result of all that, whatever it was, definitely has left me an album I can live with very, very happily. I like it very much. Ultimately, Wish You Were Here benefits from Waters' less confrontational lyrics. Those would resurface on the next album, Animals, and Gilmore and Wright's classic atmospherics to produce what is arguably the definitive Pink Floyd album. It went triple platinum here in Canada, and it becomes the latest inductee into the Drive Rock of Fame. I'm Kelly Parker.